Okay, let's take our Bibles this evening. Let's <clears throat> turn to First Timothy with me. First Timothy, chapter two. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter 2 and we'll begin reading from verse 8 this evening. It says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women uh, professing godliness with good works, that the woman learn, uh, woman learn in silence with all subjection, that suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you <clears throat> for the wonderful uh, opportunity to come together this evening and gather around your word. And Lord, I pray that you would just undertake now that you'd bless our time, you'd give us wisdom and understanding of the passage that's before us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would empower me through the Spirit as only you can. The words to say this evening, your words and your thoughts, and may you speak to our hearts. Uh, Lord, as you see fit, we pray that you would be honoured and glorified, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember in chapter 1, <clears throat> Paul charged Timothy to war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And in chapter 2, Paul is now elaborating upon that charge. He's elaborating upon that charge and he's sort of giving him some instructions as to how he is to go about, to do, about doing this, how he is to war a good warfare, how he is to hold the faith in good conscience. What should he put in place there in the church at Ephesus? And so he's giving Timothy here some instructions concerning public worship. And as we saw last time, he begins these instructions with an exhortation to uh, public prayer. Uh, read with me again verse 1. Chapter 2 verse 1 says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. And so he starts these list of instructions by uh, pointing out to Timothy the necessity for public prayer within the local church and that he needs to instill this and make sure it's taking place. Uh, public prayer as, as a church, as a body of believers. And he says that he needs to lead the people in prayer for all men. As we saw last week, this makes it clear that, you know, as a church, all people are to be on our hearts. All people are to be on our minds when we pray, whether they are people we, we know or not, whether they're people we necessarily like, you know, whether they're friends or enemies, we are still to pray for them and make them the subject of our prayers. And in verse 2, we saw that that included even our government. Verse 2, he goes on, he says, For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life 
in all godliness and honesty. So we saw that this uh, prayer for all men includes even the government. Now, the best defense we talked about last time, the best defense against becoming filled with hatred towards our government is to pray for them, to pray earnestly and lovingly for them. Now, pray that they might get saved, pray that God would bless them, have his hand upon them. And we said that the result of praying like this is that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life. The idea that when we commit these things to the Lord in prayer, then we can trust in Him. We can trust in Him to take care of those problems. And so we, we can be at peace within and at peace without. And we saw a bit like Paul and Silas in the prison, able to sing at midnight. They had, a, had peace in their hearts. They were able to lead a quiet and peaceable life. Committed it to the Lord. And then in verses 3 to 7, Paul went on and explained the reason why we should pray for all people. In verse 3 it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of, our, of God, our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time, whereunto I am ordained, a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. So Paul explains the reason clearly why we should pray for all people. And put simply, we should pray for all people because God loves all people. Because God is their creator and God is their redeemer. He is the only one who can redeem them. And so we ought to pray because it's the burden, it's the heart of our God that all men might be saved. And so having talked about all this, having given the exhortation to pray, and then he sort of diverts a little bit and tells us why we should pray, because it's the heart of God, he now returns back to that initial exhortation to pray in verse 8. It says in verse 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So the words, I will, therefore, points back to the very start of the chapter, points back to that exhortation to pray for all men, including the government. It points back to that and it connects it all together. And the words, I will, here, do not mean that these are simply Paul's wishes. And it's important we understand that. Okay? When he says, I will, he's not saying this is what I wish. This is not what, you know, just what he wants. Okay, there's two Greek words that can be translated I will or I desire. And the first one is thelo, and it speaks of a wish that's seated in the emotions. Okay, and so it speaks of someone's personal desire. It's based on their emotions. But the second Greek word is the word balumai. And it's stronger than thelo, and it indicates for us a wish, intention, or purpose formed after deliberation or a desire which proceeds from the reason and it's this second word that paul uses here when he says i will it's this word balumai and so by using this word paul is making clear that what follows here is not stemming from his emotions it's not just what he feels rather this stems from reason it stems from deliberation from knowledge it comes from his position as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The commentator Kent writes this, he says, Thus, we have Paul's apostolic directive to Timothy and to the Ephesian congregation. And so it's an apostolic directive here. Okay? And it's important for us to understand that. Okay? He is speaking here with authority, declaring God's will concerning the things that follow here. Okay? And in particular here tonight, concerning this matter of public prayer. And so with that in mind, let's consider first of all here this evening, we see who should lead public prayer. We see who should lead public, public prayer. Look in verse 8 with me again. <clears throat> it says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Verse 8 starts out, it says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere. It's immediately clear that this responsibility of leading the church in public prayer, public prayer for all men, that responsibility falls upon the men of the church. Now the word translated men here is the Greek word andras, and it denotes men as distinguished from women. Okay, It's distinguishing the two sexes. It doesn't mean mankind in general. Okay, that's a completely different Greek word. That's the Greek word anthropos, okay, which we see used all throughout the New Testament and other places where it's general. It's talking about men and women, talking about mankind. But here Paul uses this word andras to make it clear, distinguishing here between the men and the women. Okay? He makes it very clear that it's the men, not the women, who are to take the lead in the church in this matter of public prayer. It's important that we remember here that Paul is speaking about the worship services of the church. Okay? He's not putting a blanket statement out there that women are never allowed to pray inside this building. You know, they're never allowed to pr pray inside the church. You know, they cannot pray at a, a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, for instance. That's not what he's saying here. The instruction is concerning the worship service, what we're doing right now, the worship service. It's the coming together to worship the Lord and it's the men of the congregation who are to take the lead in this matter of public prayer, to lead the brethren in prayer unto the Lord because prayer is an act of worship. And so the men are to lead in this act of worship unto the Lord. And this instruction here also makes it clear that leading the church in prayer is not something that's limited to just the pastor and the deacons, for instance. Rather, it's a responsibility of all men. So that's what he means here when he says, I will therefore that men, he says all men, basically. All the men of the church. One commentator wrote this, the words also imply that all the men of the congregation were desired to take part in public prayer. Public prayer was not restricted to the leaders of the church. It's an important little point because, you know, through the centuries, many different denominations have added to prayer limitations, haven't they? They've added limitations and restrictions to who is able to lead the church in prayer, limiting it to only those who are in the position of pastor or elder or deacon or you know, part of the clergy in some other denominations. They limit it to only that select few. 
It's an unscriptural limitation. It's restricting something that God said was a responsibility of all men. It's restricting it to just the few. As if somehow those few have a special right to it, have a special connection with God that everyone else doesn't. And so it's important that we take note of that there, isn't it? You know, that it is all men of the church who are able to take this responsibility of leading in prayer. But then Paul also adds the word everywhere. Okay, he says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere. Now literally translated here, the Greek reads in every place. In every pr- place. Now Paul is not urging men to pray wherever they might be. Although that is certainly a principle that's taught elsewhere in the Word of God. You know, for instance, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17 says, Pray without ceasing. And we know that's talking about the fact that we should pray right throughout the day, wherever we are, in every place. We should spend time in prayer with the Lord. But that's not the point here. Rather, this word here, everywhere or in every place, is a directive that wherever a body of believers are gathered together for worship, the men are to lead the congregation in public prayer. That's the point here, okay? Wherever a body of believers is gathered together, the men are the ones who are to take the lead. Now, the words every place are important, or everywhere, sorry, are important because they make it clear that this wasn't just for the church at Ephesus. You know, it wasn't as if, you know, the church at Ephesus needed a special set of instructions that were unique to their circumstances and so this only applies to them which is what some people try to say this didn't just apply to the church at Ephesus no this was for every place every congregation every church wherever they might be and so these instructions include this body of believers right here doesn't it the church at Clarence Valley it includes us and so it's clear that in every place of public worship In every church, this directive that men lead in prayer is to be followed. And then we see secondly now how they are to lead. We see how they are to lead or how they should lead. Look in verse 8 again. It says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Excuse me. So having made it clear who is to lead the church in public prayer, Paul now goes on to give us three directives concerning how men are to lead. And the first of these is seen in the words, lifting up holy hands. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Now this idea of lifting up hands describes the the posture that was common among the Jews when they prayed, and indeed amongst the the early church as well. They would lift their hands towards heaven when they prayed. We see this posture described for us in the Old Testament frequently. Uh, For instance, 1 Kings chapter 8. Let's turn there. 1 Kings. First Kings 8 verse 22 says, And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven and said, Lord God of Israel, 
There is no God like thee in heaven above or in heaven or on earth beneath who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. And so here we see King Solomon standing at the dedication of, of the temple and he lifts his hands towards heaven as he prays unto the Lord. We've seen King David speak of this posture also in Psalm 28. Just turn there, Psalm 28. In Psalm 28 and verse 2. says, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. So David here, again, he speaks about this same posture, this lifting up of hands towards heaven when they prayed. And so this is the posture that Paul is mentioning here. Okay, when he says lifting up of holy hands, he's mentioning this posture that was common among the Jews and common amongst the early church. Okay, it was adopted as their own. But Paul doesn't mention it here because this is the only acceptable posture that we must take when we pray. You know, if we were to go through the Word of God and do a study, we would see numerous postures mentioned. You know, in Genesis 17, verse 3, we read, And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying. In Genesis 24, verse 26, it says, And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. In Daniel 6, verse 10, it says, And his windows being open in his chambers towards Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed. And so in those three passages alone, we see that falling on our face to the ground, we see bowing the head, we see kneeling are all acceptable postures when we come before the Lord to pray. We could go on and read others and see that standing, sitting, lifting up the eyes, they're all mentioned. You see, the point is there's not just one posture that must be adopted when we pray. And indeed, our present custom today of bowing our head and you know, maybe putting our hands together and closing our eyes isn't even mentioned in the Word of God. But that doesn't make it wrong because it's not the posture that matters. But rather, it's what's indicated here by the word holy. If we go back to our present passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. It says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. The key here is the word holy. You see, Paul doesn't mention the lifting up of hands here because this is the posture that we must adopt when we pray. But rather, he mentions it here to emphasize the need for holy hands when we pray. Henriksen writes this, he says, What is stressed throughout Scripture and also in the passage now under study is not the posture of the body or the position of the hands, but the inner attitude of the soul. The hands that are lifted up must be holy. That is, they must be hands unpolluted by previous crimes. You see, holiness is the emphasis here when we come to pray. Holiness. Now, the word translated holy here is interesting because it's not the word hagios, which is what we normally see used. Hagios is the word that we see used, for instance, in 1 Peter. Chapter 1, just quickly turn there, verse we know well. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 Peter 1, verse 16. <clears throat> says, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That word holy there is the word hagios, 
and it means to be set apart unto God. So it talks about being separated from the world, being separated unto the Lord, being separated as God is. We talked about God's holiness this morning, that He is set, set apart from everything else. He is holy. And so that's the word hagios. But in our present passage here, Paul doesn't use the word hagios. Instead, he uses the word hosios. It's a different word and it emphasizes for us more the idea of being clean and pure in life. So hagios speaks of being wholly separate, while hosios speaks of being holy in the sense of being unpolluted. Being unpolluted. One commentator sums it up well. He said, The one leading in prayer must have holy hands, hands unstained with sin through employment in impure deeds. He who would lead others to the throne of God must be morally qualified to do so. And so the emphasis here is that when we come to worship the Lord, those that lead in prayer, lead in worship, must be walking in a right relationship with the Lord. It doesn't mean sinless because we know we all sin. Each and every day we all sin. So it doesn't mean sinless, but rather it speaks of having our heart right before God with no unconfessed sin in our hearts, no known sin that we haven't dealt with. Now, of course, this is a principle that's true for all of us when we come to worship the Lord, not just those who are leading in worship, leading in prayer. No, for all of us, when we come to worship the Lord, we must come with holy hands if we want our worship to be acceptable unto the Lord. Now, we see that spoken about in Psalm 24. <clears throat> Just turn over there with me. Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 3 <clears throat> says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. And here we see the psalmist David here declares that the man who can ascend into the, the hill of the Lord, in other words, come into God's presence to have fellowship with him, commune with God, is the man who has clean hands and a pure heart. And clean hands speaks of having a right relationship with the Lord, having our, our walk right with him. It's the idea of having dealt with sin so that our hands are clean. Our relationship is right. You know, it's the principle of 1 John 1, 9, isn't it? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's that idea of keeping a short account with God, keeping our hearts right before him so that we can come and worship him. As I said, it doesn't just apply to those leading in prayer. It applies to all of us when we come to worship the Lord. Make sure that we get our hearts right before Him. You know, Psalm 68, uh, 66, sorry, verse 18, makes it abundantly clear how important it is that we deal with known sin. Psalm 66, verse 18, <clears throat> it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. makes it very clear that we cannot come to worship the Lord in prayer with sin in our hearts. We must deal with no known sin. And so those men who would lead the church in prayer must have dealt with sin in their lives. They must 
be right before God. Paul then adds to this the second phrase. He says, without wrath. He says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath. Now the word wrath here (coughs) speaks of having a sinful attitude of heart towards others. It speaks of ill will or resentment, even bitterness towards someone else. You see, such an attitude hinders our prayers, doesn't it? Wrath towards others hinders our prayers. In James chapter 1, it tells us that the wrath of man doesn't work or accomplish the righteousness of God. Just go there, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 19. It says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Man's wrath doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. Man's wrath is not holy like God's wrath. You see, our wrath is based on personal feelings. And so often what it leads to is us seeking evil upon someone else. That's the result of our wrath. In Luke chapter 9, we have a really good illustration of what man's wrath produces. Go there, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we'll start reading from verse 51. Luke 9 verse 51 says, And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up. He steadfastly uh, set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messages before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans, to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Really illustration of what man's wrath leads to. Now the disciples here, in particular it's James and John, are, are angry. They're filled with wrath towards the Samaritans because they wouldn't receive the Lord. They didn't help the Lord. And so their response was, let us call down fire from heaven and destroy them all. That was their response of wrath. And that attitude, of course, was quickly rebuked by the Lord, wasn't it? The Lord said, I didn't come to destroy, I came to save. He said, I didn't come to destroy, I came in love and compassion. You see, this same love and compassion towards men is to be our attitude of heart when we pray. Wrath is the very opposite of that, isn't it? It's the very opposite of how we should pray. And we cannot pray effectively according to God's will with wrath in our hearts. And this connects back to the original command that we pray for all men, including our government. Verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. See, it connects well back to that original command, doesn't it? Because you see, if we have wrath, 
in our hearts toward others, if we have wrath towards our governments, how can we possibly obey the command of our Lord to pray for them, to pray for all men? How can we possibly pray for them in love and with compassion if we have wrath in our heart, resentment in our hearts towards them? The truth is we can't. You see, we must first put away wrath, deal with our sinful attitude of heart, and that's what it is. It's a sinful attitude of heart. We must deal with that first before we come and worship the Lord in prayer. Now, Ephesians 4 tells us that we must put away wrath and bitterness and instead show forgiveness towards others. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You see, we ought to put away bitterness, put away wrath. They're, they're works of the flesh. Put away those things and instead put on that love and forgiveness that God has shown us. So when we pray, we must come having forgiven those who have offended us. We must come having you know, no bitterness in our hearts. Only then can we pray with the heart of God. Pray with love for all men. And so here Paul tells us that we must come with holy hands, our hearts right before God, without wrath, our heart right towards others, And then he adds finally there, he says, and it's without doubting. He says, I will therefore that every man, sorry, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now this final word here speaks of coming and praying with an attitude of confidence. Confidence in our God. The word itself means reasoning. And here it speaks of reasoning within oneself. You're reasoning within. It speaks of doubting God and doubting His word, doubting His faithfulness to answer our prayer. Doubting His character and His his dealings with us. You know, doubt is the very opposite of faith, isn't it? It's the very opposite of faith. And James chapter 1 makes it clear that when we pray, we must pray in faith. Just turn there, James chapter 1. James 1, verse 6, it says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And James makes it clear that when we pray, we're to pray in faith, without wavering. It must come with a firm, unwavering confidence in our God. And James says that when we doubt, we're like the wave of the sea, aren't we? Driven with the wind and tossed. We're unstable. We're double-minded. You see, faith means resting confidently in our God to hear and answer our prayers. Confidently trusting that He will keep His promises unto us. You know, 1 John chapter 5 speaks of the, the confidence that we can have when we pray. 1 John chapter 5. <clears throat> Verse 
First John 5 and verse 14, it says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we shall have the petitions that we desired of him. You know, John, he speaks of the confidence we can have when we pray. If we pray according to God's will, then we can pray with confidence that he will hear and answer our prayer. And in verse 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, we've already seen what God's will is when we pray. God's will when we pray is that we pray for all men with love and compassion. And so if we pray according to God's will, we can pray without doubt, can't we? We can pray confidently that God will hear and answer that prayer. You know, when we put everything that we've learned tonight from verse 8 together, we see a very clear instruction for the church that the men are the ones who are appointed to lead in public prayer. And those who take the lead must make sure that they pray with holy hands, in other words, their hearts right before God, pray without wrath, their hearts right towards others, and they're to pray without doubt, pray in faith, confident that God will hear and answer as we pray according to His will. You know, of course, this truth doesn't just apply to public prayer, does it? It applies to all of us when we come before the Lord in prayer. Now, when we come before the Lord in prayer, we need to come with our hearts right before the Lord, come with forgiveness in our hearts towards those who have offended us, and then pray confidently, knowing that God will hear and answer our prayer. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you, Lord, for these clear instructions for us as a body of believers when we come together to worship you, those who should lead the church in prayer. But Lord, those same instructions apply to all of us as we come before you in prayer ourselves. Lord, may you help us each every day to come with our hearts right before you, deal with known sin. Help us to forgive those who offend us, those who do wrong towards us. Put away wrath and bitterness. And Lord, help us then to pray confidently, trusting in you, knowing that you'll hear and you'll answer our prayers. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the privilege of prayer. And Lord, may you commit these things to our hearts this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.